bomb sirens hurled blood-curdling screams across the pitch-black sky. The call was so loud that it was still heard deep beyond the basement walls, even with the sound of this young woman crying nearby in pain. She's lying down on a hospital bed. It's an older bed, kept in storage. It's collected rust, but it's been turned into a makeshift mattress by folding some blankets and putting them over top of the iron springs. It would have to do for now. Nearby nurses and doctors attend to others sharing the space with this woman undergoing labor in this lantern-lit hospital basement. Budapest, Hungary, 1944. A tumultuous time in Hungary as the country is being occupied by Nazi Germany. She takes a few deep breaths as she's instructed to push. As she does so, the room feels like it's beginning to shake. The doctor shouts that she's almost there, she's almost finished. The shaking grows more assertive, and beyond the sirens now sounds like thunder arriving in the distance. No, not thunder. Explosions. On pure adrenaline, her eyes widen. She blocks out the pain and yells a furious shout. As the baby boy enters the world, the sound of explosions have drawn close. Debris falls from the ceiling, and the woman clutches her baby instinctively, close to her chest and curls around him. The bombing stops. The sirens are no longer ringing out, and the sound of a newborn baby screaming slowly fades into the foreground. She shushes him gently to quiet him. To soothe him, yes, but also due to the fear that someone might hear. A few months later, the city is occupied by the Nazis. The young woman has to be careful about who she trusts. The journey to the doctor has grown increasingly threatening for her during the Nazi occupation. She does her best to remain unseen on her journey throughout the Budapest side streets. She carries her newborn son inside the lapel of her coat and scarf to keep him warm and safe. Inside the doctor's office, the doctor asks her if she's been following the baby's prescribed feeding schedule as directed. She says yes, but she does admit that a few nights ago he was crying so loud that she had a moment of weakness and she gave him some milk hours before he was due. The doctor said he understood her frustration, especially given the times, but recommended that this doesn't happen again. Back home, she sits in her chair, looking through the tiny gap in the window's blinds. A military jeep passes and Nazi soldiers patrol the streets. They stop near an apartment building just further down the road from her. Her heart begins to race. The occupation was worsening and as her anxiety begins to rise up in her chest, the baby begins to cry. She jumps out of her chair instinctively and goes into the room further away from the windows and it's especially made for this occasion of muffling sound. She's rocked him until he settled down and eventually fell asleep. The room was dark. The lamp was nearby, very close to where she was sitting on the floor but she was so fearful that if she moved, that her son would wake up, so she just rocked him in the dark. Everyday people, the young woman knew, were now being rounded up and sent to camps daily. The bombing raids in Budapest intensified. At this point, the woman and her son, and also his older sibling, they were on the move for several days. And at one point, they had become separated from their mother when she was forced to leave them with strangers to go look for food. After several days, they reunited, but she finally decided to flee the country. From there, they went to a refugee camp in Austria and then to Canada, where they could begin to rebuild their lives. She would find that it's not so simple to just pick up and move and everything would be fine. Because as her baby boy grew, he showed signs of trouble. He struggled to pay attention and focus in school. 
and his parents scorned him since they hoped that he would become a successful doctor one day. And that still didn't change the fact that he was unbelievably bored and disconnected from the material that he was being taught. For a reason that he just couldn't explain, he just felt a deep sense of insecurity and self-doubt, further impacting his academic performance and social interactions, of course. He turned to drugs and alcohol as a teenager and young adult to cope with his feelings, which grew increasingly hard to manage with time. Drugs provided a temporary relief and escape, but he knew his addiction negatively impacted his health and relationships in the long run. Where am I going with this story, you might ask? On this show, I constantly talk about what ADHD is and ways to treat it and navigate the neurological difference, but this episode is gonna be equal parts informative and culturally philosophical. Throughout my research, I've seen that ADHD is a mystery to professionals, and nobody really knows where it comes from or how it occurs. Over time, we've studied the characteristics and traits of ADHD. However, we're still trying to understand the condition's root causes. I'm obviously not a doctor, and I'm not a medical professional either. I'm not really educated in the realms of neuroscience, but still, I have been reading and viewing lectures from somebody who is, and his theories about the origins of ADHD astound me. In this two-part episode, I'll talk about the most substantial theory about where ADHD and other conditions like it come from, the circumstances that cause them, and some heady tangents on the more profound cultural discussions that arise as a byproduct. If this is your Jimmy Jam, then stay tuned. Attention, please. This is a show that's all about things adult ADHD related. And I am your host, DC. Now, in the last episode, which was a two-parter, it said it would be a while before I did another one. Similar, uh, another two-parter. But here I am back again to do another. (laughs) So um, I figured I was on a good tangent already, so I might as well jump in. But before I get into today's main topic, I want to shout out to some people that have been interacting with me on the Spotify episode comment threads. The previous two episodes were all about this massive Adderall shortage that's happening in the United States. And I received a comment from this listener in regard to the question, and I asked in the comment section of part one, uh, have you been affected by the Adderall shortage? Simple question, right? I received uh, a couple of responses, and one of them in particular actually said something that kind of helps verify a detail that I talked about in one of those previous two-part episodes. This person said, quote, yes, sort of. My meds don't seem to help like they used to, and they began to stop working right around November, and that's the month after I heard of the Adderall shortage, sad face, end quote. Um, I'm not going to say this person's name because I didn't ask if they could, and this is kind of sensitive subject uh, matter, but thank you very much for sending out that comment and apparently yes the formula for Adderall did change without any announcement and it was assumed that it was probably linked to these nationwide shortages and actually weird crazy thing I literally right before recording this just refilled my prescription and I went to the pharmacy and they I had been getting the generic Dextro it had these little uh, it's like a green silver capsule top and um I went to pick up my script today and it kind of looks like the original Adderall, except it's still generic, but the capsules are a totally different color. They're like a navy blue or darker blue and white. So I'm like, that's weird. 
So I do think that they are kind of scraping to put these prescriptions together so people don't freak out. So at least there is some attention being made to it, but it would be nice to know like, hey, this is going to be different than what you normally get. Anyway, thanks for sending that note in. I haven't noticed any change in the medication so far, but um, we'll see. So in that same two-part episode, I think it was in episode two, I put out a poll and in the poll question I asked, have you struggled to get your medications due to the Adderall shortage? And at least one person seems to be having difficulty getting their meds because of the shortage. Don't be shy guys, you can get involved. But it is kind of personal question, so I understand. But either way, the person that is experiencing a shortage, so I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And I hope you're not really going through an extreme case of med shortage, like where you're like, oh my God, you're in the house, you're freaking out, you're on the couch all day. Anyone out there experiencing a shortage, there's not really much I can do to help but offer nice words. But I do want to say that, you know, keep your spirits up. Things are bound to bounce back no matter how dark it seems. Prescriptions will get filled eventually and shortages always end. So take deep breaths, stay hydrated, exercise, make concerted efforts to talk kindly to yourself. And if you haven't heard anything about this, you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, go back to the last two episodes. And um, on part two, actually, I give some tips on what to do if you are experiencing a shortage. Um, I would recap that now. I want to, but I don't have a lot of time. Overall, I just want to say thank you for everyone interacting with me on the episode threads. And I encourage you all to look out for polls and questions on every single episode. They're only open for a limited amount of time. And if you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down to the episode that you're listening to. And in those details, you should see questions, polls, and other stuff. There's all these links in there to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, resources and stuff too. So, oh, also got some new followers. Thank you for subscribing. If you like the content that I'm putting out and you haven't subscribed yet or rated the show, please, please take a few seconds to subscribe and rate this show five stars. I put tons of time into this show and heart you guys don't even know and imagine how hard it is for someone with ADHD to create these episodes actually this episode has been the last couple ones have been really um, in depth and I think I'm getting a little overzealous with these two-part episodes I really want to start unpacking some more complex subjects and things like that but honestly Unless I put out episodes every couple of weeks or something or once a month, um, I'm either going to have to go back to shorter episodes until the show gains more steam and I get some more followers and whatnot. I'm not really sure what direction I'm going to go, but I will keep you guys updated. I don't remember all this stuff that I spit out the top of my head seemingly, by the way. I'm not Jay-Z, right? I write most of this stuff down. All these episodes are based on scripts and, and notes that I write down. If you ever had to write a speech for like a public speaking class or something like that it takes forever to write a speech that lasts five minutes like it takes way more than five minutes if it takes you 45 minutes to write six to eight paragraphs of some sort of content when you go back and read it out loud it probably only takes like three minutes to read it in adhd time 45 minutes of focus on one subject is like it feels like three hours and it takes much more than 45 minutes to put this stuff together. So I'm saying all that to say subscribing to and liking this show is one of the most significant things that you can do. It's the, and it's also the biggest sign of appreciation. Sharing the show on social media. Don't, oh my God, don't get me even started. It's getting me hot in here. 
some thoughts for the future. I've been thinking about doing video. Uh, so let me know in the comments if you're how you're feeling about the episodes. Do you like the length of the two parters more? Do you want me to go back to simple subjects? Do you want to see video? Just say something in the comments. All right. So, all right. Now let's finally get into the meat of this episode. I learned about this doctor who made very compelling claims about ADHD and other mental conditions resulting from trauma. His name is Dr. Gabor Mate. He's worked in family practice and palliative care for over 40 years, and he's known for his addiction, stress, and childhood development expertise. He's written several books, including Scattered Minds, A New Look at the Origins and Healing of Attention Deficit Disorder, and When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress, and he's also appeared in numerous documentaries and given many talks and interviews on addiction, trauma, and mental health topics. His approach to addiction and mental health emphasizes the importance of understanding the underlying causes of these issues, such as childhood trauma and social factors. And he goes really hard on the childhood trauma, and we'll talk about that some more. His work, though, has been very influential in promoting a more holistic and compassionate approach to addiction and mental health treatment. Dr. Gabor Mate's ideas about mental health are profound and unique. Some might say controversial because he believes that ADHD and by proxy some other mental disorders are primarily caused by genetic, environmental, and developmental factors. A lot of it has to do with childhood trauma. He talks about this in his book, Scattered Minds. I have to share Dr. Mate's theories um, and his research and the supporting scientific evidence that he uses as a basis for his findings. In the next episode, I'll be talking more about how to deal with ADHD, how to heal it more specifically, at least in theory. And this is all going to be based on the evidence that I'm going to talk about today. And also, I just do want to give a quick disclaimer that this particular episode is because of the social commentary and things that are said about parenthood and raising kids, it may cause some people to feel jaded. I want you to listen, but I do want you to keep in mind that there is no judgment. I don't even have kids, so I don't know anything. I do find this information to be pretty interesting. Here we go. We're going to talk a little bit about how Dr. Mate even came to these conclusions in the first place. After being a doctor for a while, treating people with conditions, addictions, ADHD, depression, etc., he realized there's like a high relapse rate in a lot of these people. They tend to do all right with therapy and medication, but after a while, they tend to slope back down into their normal patterns and behaviors. So he was like, what is there, is there a way we can actually treat ADHD and other conditions to where people are healed? It's not just like a Band-Aid thing. In an effort to gain more information, he starts living with some patients and studying their behavior, trying to get some data, essentially. After living with these patients who are struggling, he noticed a... That every, he noticed that every person he worked with had a history of childhood trauma. And the extent of these symptoms that they had seemed to correlate. They tended to be more mild or worse depending on the type of trauma that they had in many cases, if not most cases. According to Dr. Mate, ADHD and depression, addiction, etc. is not just a brain disorder but a whole body disorder that arises from a complex interaction of genetic vulnerability, environmental toxins, and more importantly, early developmental factors. He argues that ADHD is often related to early childhood experiences of stress, neglect, and trauma, which can affect the developing brain and lead to problems with attention, impulse control, 
and emotional regulation. He has publicly stated that he himself has ADHD and has written about his personal experiences with the condition. He has a hypothesis about why he has ADHD himself. He's this doctor, everybody looks at him, he's got his shit together, he's, he's, he knows things, but he himself suffers from mental disorders. But why? Remember that baby from the story in Budapest? That's him, that's Dr. Gabor Mate as an infant. His story is a harrowing tale of triumph in the face of the ultimate adversity. It is also in his mind a key indicator in his future struggles with ADHD and addiction. He had a deep insight one day into his childhood traumas and how they were affecting him in the present. One day he was waiting for his wife to pick him up from an airport because he's on tour doing lectures, selling books and all that stuff. And she was in charge of picking him up. And she's an artist, she was working on a painting or something, she lost track of time, didn't see her phone. When she finally contacts him, they get in touch and she goes to pick him up. Or maybe, he, actually he might have even got a taxi or something, but either way, the point is that he started giving her the silent treatment once he finally got home. He's having these emotional outbursts. He's, he's feeling, in his mind, all of a sudden, noticing that he feels like a child again. He understands intellectually that, oh, I love my wife. She didn't mean to do this to me. She totally forgot. Why would she leave me at an airport? Why would she do that to me? And suddenly he found the impact of this stress and it's like, oh, I'm not mad at her. I'm being reconnected to a reaction that was taught to me by growing up in a Nazi-occupied country, having this stress, more particularly being separated from his mother. This experience was more showed more resemblance to being triggered. And essentially, the experience aroused a neural pathway that was likely part of some sort of early defense mechanisms that he needed to develop. And after some more research, he starts to look into these things more. And he has a whole paradigm shift. And then he starts to preach that he believes that the pressures of modern society, demands of work and school, technology, these things exacerbate symptoms of ADHD. Love and value come at a cost in our society. You don't have to grow up in a war-torn country to feel abandoned or traumatized. If you behave within the accepted guidelines, life tends to carry these benefits, certain benefits that just make opportunities usually more abundant and better for you. On top of that, you get this sense of belonging. As we move forward in this discussion, we're gonna learn that there are a lot of things that can traumatize people who don't have to be in a war-torn country, but also that we have this society, this framework that we've created that uses validation in a way that kind of harms us. But first, before we get into all that, we have to talk about brain development and trauma. What is stress? What is trauma? What, what does this stuff all mean? Dr. Mate explains that when we are undergoing our formative years, we're often traumatized by our parents. It's usually unintentional or by some environmental factor like living in a, a really bad place like, a, like Budapest in 1944. And this trauma affects our brain development. In Dr. Mate's case, it was being born in Budapest, Hungary, and the trauma he experienced as a result. A brain during development is meant to act as a sponge and to take in as much about the world as possible to create a model for survival into our adult years. Psychologists say that humans establish our strongest foundational worldviews at early ages. And this is why kids are so playful and curious. They move around a lot. They laugh and they cry back to back. 
they are hungry and they're unwilling to eat. They fall down and they get back up. They experience various emotions from second to second because they're biological learning machines at this time. And we don't notice it. Most people probably don't think about it. But during these, this playtime, these interactions that are so valuable, kids are learning how to tolerate discomfort, how to correctly manage stress in the future, share. They're learning how they're going to be treated, amongst other things. Learning isn't conscious. It's almost, it almost has everything to do with brain development. During early development, while your body is still growing, your brain is also growing. Two parts of the brain are interesting regarding this topic. The amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. They're both interesting because they're both very crucial parts that allow us to control our emotions. But depending on the conditions and the environment you spent your formative years in, this will affect how these parts particularly develop. It'll affect size, shape, and effectiveness of how they function. So let's talk about the amygdala. Why are these parts so important? The amygdala, it's a kidney bean shaped thing. It's tiny, it's in the center of your brain. And its primary function is to recognize threats. It's like a, a security camera. Danger, fear, pain, and stress in general. It constantly is on the lookout during stressful experiences. When it notices something potentially threatening, it sends a message to your hypothalamus, leading to a bunch of other signals and inevitably a stress response occurs. And that happens because hormones are released into your body. This biological response evolved as a trait for protection and survival. An example of this would be you're walking in the woods alone at night and suddenly across your path steps a bear. Your amygdala will see this and right away go, yo, 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 wake up. This is not a drill. And then you get an adrenaline rush and you run from that bear at like twice the speed you normally would be able to. Or maybe you even go into beast mode and fight the bear, beat it to death. Or so. I don't know. You know, you get what I'm trying to say, though. And not to be crass, but this hormonal reaction that we see is explains a lot. This is might be sometimes why people become frightened enough to lose control of their motor functions, like their bladder control. They'll wet their pants. They'll pee themselves. Sometimes people throw up in stressful situations because processes like digestion and holding urine are non-vital mechanisms in the face of a flight or flight situation, at least according to the body. Losing consciousness is another response to danger. A super unfortunate one. Don't know what point that has, but either way, Actually, if anyone's ever seen those videos of people on that slingshot ride at theme park, that's even a good example. You know, that uh, it's like a little seat. It's this, there's two poles on either side of this pod little ball thing. Um, these poles are like hundreds of feet tall. And at the end of them, there's these uh, bungee cords and they're connected to this pod. And this pod is being held to the ground with latches. It's literally being anchored down. Now, when these latches come undone, this pod flies into the air at incredible speeds and it bounces up and down a few times. Every once in a while, you'll see a video of two people sitting in it together and one person screaming and then all of a sudden they just lose consciousness and then they fall asleep and then they wake up in the middle of it again like, oh my God, they remember what the hell happened and then they pass out again. This is stress responses, okay? All these stress responses originate from my understanding in the amygdala. The amygdala perceives danger and it sends out signals. And then once those signals are verified and checked, if it's real danger, the body will respond appropriately. 
Now, this is where we're going to talk about the prefrontal cortex, the other half of this whole equation. is a part of the brain uh, that's large, and it also helps us control our thoughts and our actions. Now, imagine your amygdala is Scarface. I'm giving a lot of examples this episode. So your amygdala is Scarface, right? Your prefrontal cortex would be his right-hand man then, Manolo. Loyal to the very end and just always there to hold you down. The whole job of the prefrontal cortex is to control our stress and emotional responses, to save them for times that are only absolutely necessary. So you're walking through the same woods and you think you see a bear. Your amygdala is like, oh shit, it's a bear. And it's about to pull out its fucking grenade launcher like Tony Montana. And it's the job of your prefrontal cortex to stick its arm out and say, yo, 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 hold up. It's just a shadow. It's not a bear at all. And there isn't one. And that stops your body in the realization that your amygdala was just freaking out. It was, it was mistaken. Your prefrontal cortex jumps in and says, hey, false alarm. This calms you back down, sends signals to the other hormones, and then no adrenaline response or very little one. It shuts it all, shuts that freaky reaction off. And then you can relax again. This is extremely important that you do calm down. Stress hormones like adrenaline are perfect for momentary bursts of speed, strength, visual acuity, energy, but still they mute other primary body functions to work. That's why you pass out or pee yourself or throw up when you get in crazy situations because digestion, you know, blood flow, focus, all this stuff, fight or flight situations, they reroute all that energy and send it to the places that need it to get away. So chronically stressed people have issues with like losing belly fat even. They experience hair loss sometimes. And, and if these feelings persist, these fight or flight states, you can get more severe health problems. And that's why we need the prefrontal cortex. It's a temporary, we gain this temporary boost of superhuman powers, but it hurts us as well. And the prefrontal cortex tells us when it's, when it's safe to be cool again. So suppose you haven't seen the movie Scarface. In that case, there's a reason why I chose to use these characters of the movie to explain how the amygdala and PFC work together. In the film, Al Pacino's character Scarface, he's this hot-headed gangster dude. He's always got his head on a swivel. He's always got a chip on his shoulder. He's always ready to throw down or catch a body, right? He's constantly paranoid and overreactive. His friend Manolo, on the other hand, is not that guy. He's lighthearted. He jokes. He chases girls around. He thinks everything is easy breezy. I mean, he is a, a killer as well, but he's pretty cool. He always brings Tony back to earth. This is a spoiler alert if you haven't seen Scarface, but I'm sorry, I'm going to keep going because the movie came out in 83. So you've had like 40 years to watch it. Scarface eventually in a fit of anger, loses control and he kills Manolo. And afterwards, shortly is killed himself. Tony and Manolo's story is important as a metaphor because it is how the brain responds to stress. But if you grow up in a state where your prefrontal cortex never really calms you back down and your amygdala is hyperactive, this is how you get an enlarged size amygdala. It usually stays with you for life. This is kind of the, the amygdala overrides the prefrontal cortex all the time. And this is when stress and sickness start to happen. Cognitive impairments. So basically children in particular who experienced minimal to severe stress before the age of 15 months old showed an, an increase in amygdala volume, meaning it's enlarged. And this increase in amygdala size is linked to a hyperactive amygdala, meaning that you're hypervigilant for stressors to come and attack you. Another word for this is being distracted, paranoid or anxious, inattentive even, right? 
The amygdala also is responsible for emotional learning and memory, attention, perception, emotional and social behaviors, inhibitions, self-regulation. It reinforces learned experiences as well. So if you developed as a child in a crazy environment, you might experience some interesting symptoms that I'd say might sound familiar. Heightened anxiety, emotional sensitivity, increased stress responses, impulsivity. Hmm. Now those sound like ADHD symptoms, don't they? Back to the Scarface reference for a second. The prefrontal cortex, Manolo, he's supposed to calm you back down. But still, after a certain point, the amygdala, again, remember I said it, overpowers the prefrontal cortex so that you stay in an induced state of hypervigilance. Maybe you can't sit still for long periods of time. You're always on the lookout. So when you grow up in an environment, like I said, that causes your brain stress, you grow intertwined with that stress. And what's proposed by Dr. Mate's ideas is that we have names for these behaviors that we call ADHD, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and more. But in truth, these are merely external symptoms used to describe a person whose brain has been imprinted upon by a traumatic experience or uh, some sort of bad thing that mostly happened during during your childhood. And you might be thinking, whew, at least I didn't, you know, grow up in a traumatic household. Chances are you weren't born during a bombing raid or had to flee to a, you know, internment camp or had to flee to a refugee camp because of some genocidal dictatorship or whatever. But hold on, though. Have you ever wondered what qualifies as stress to a child? What is stress? We've, we know how it works now, but what is stress? Because the example I use is very extreme, but uh, don't be confused. We're going to talk about what stress actually is and what, what can cause you to have these, these conditions. Here's where things get very interesting. According to Dr. Gabor Mate, due to our culture, People in mass spend their formative years in situations that attack their psyches or attack other people's psyches and they don't even know it. The prefrontal cortex and the amygdala always tells the story. He claims that collectively we've adopted behaviors that harm and traumatize our children and us. The prefrontal cortex consists of three major anatomical regions, parts A, B, and C, for the sake of not saying a bunch of complex words that I don't really know what they mean anyway. The only thing that you really need to know is that the A part is associated with cognitive functions like calculations, uh, planning, whereas the B and the C parts are considered to make up the limbic system and they participate in emotional and motivational functions. Volume reduction in part C has been profoundly evident in adults who experience maltreatment as a child, not even including something as traumatic as sexual abuse. And remember, this is the part of the brain associated with motivation and will. Volume reduction in these areas seems to result in depressive disorders. These are the parts of the brain that are attacked by trauma and show physically detectable alterations. So what are some of the things that cause this to happen? And you'll be surprised at the answers. I did a list of top four because there's a bunch. But one is cry it out. If you're not familiar with crying it out, it's basically the method of leaving a baby in a crib in a room by itself to sleep. And if it starts to cry for the parents, the parents are instructed not to pick the baby up or to soothe it. 
but instead let the baby just fall asleep on its own naturally, like cry itself to sleep, which is like the saddest shit ever. And the idea is being that it makes the child more independent and less afraid to be on their own as they get older. And in fact, sadly, that's it's the opposite effect. Crying is a built-in biological signal meant for parents to give attention to their babies and pick them up, you know, pat them on the head, soothe them, kiss them, rock them. And we somehow translate that now in our culture to spoiling. And if the baby persists in crying and nobody comes to get it, it triggers this stress response. Then this is telling the still forming brain, uh, it's having this reinforced message of this is not a safe environment. Nobody cares about me here. Nobody's coming. Verbal abuse. Yelling at your kids. Again, same thing. Name calling, belittling, nagging. It triggers stress responses. Children start to internalize these comments. When you say things like, stop being so stupid or you're being a crybaby, these are incredibly damaging to a child's self-image. Grounding, the being put in the corner, but essentially the silent treatment. When children are isolated from people they get comfort from, they feel abandoned and they become subconsciously ingrained with the idea that there's something wrong with them. Essentially what it says is that love is foundationally conditional. That's the message that a child begins to form subconsciously. That life is this quid pro quo exchange and that if you want to be loved by someone, you're only worthy if you've done what they asked you to do. In childhood, you may try to overachieve because of this and you may have low self-esteem when isolation is used as a punishment. Isolation is just saying, I don't love you right now because you made a mistake or you did whatever. And when you do what I say, then you'll be worthy again. It's meant to induce shame as a punishment. And now when you grow up, you need this validation. And later on in relationships, maybe you find that you have this unexplainable desire to fulfill the needs of a toxic person even, to keep their love because it makes you feel noticed. And the last reason, and it's a very obvious one, <clears throat> is spanking. So, I mean, again, when you say it out loud, like, I'm going to, this kid's not doing what I want him to do. I'm going to rear my hand back and hit them. It doesn't really make sense. It's obvious that this is absurd to do. And when you hit your kids, again, you're, tr you're triggering a, a stress response. The amygdala immediately says, I'm unsafe here because somebody that loves me and is bigger than me physically inflicting pain upon me against my will. So your home should feel like a place where, you know, things like that don't happen, obviously. And all of these things and other things I didn't mention inevitably shorten a child's ability to sort out conflicts in the long run. They may become easily angered and confrontational in the face of adversity. Long term, they may develop states of anxiety and or hypervigilance, trying to shrink themselves as much as possible so that they can reduce the likelihood of confrontations with other people. Chronic exposure to harsh corporal punishment like getting spanked is associated with reduction in gray matter in the right medial prefrontal cortex. I believe that's the C side that I talked about. <clears throat> and that's important because changes in gray matter volume, the size of or amount of gray matter that you have is directly associated with trauma-related psychiatric disorders. Not only that, but it's also associated with someone, an adult even, who's experienced recent adverse life events or uh, perceived stress or traumas. These associations suggest that some trauma-related changes in gray matter volume act as a vulnerability marker, that it precedes the presence of trauma, meaning that 
if you get some whatever test they do, I'd imagine an MRI, and they take a look at your gray matter, if you have reduced volume in your gray matter, not your amygdala or prefrontal cortex, but in your gray matter, it's the spaces in between the pink matter of your brain. This is very uh, important for how quickly you can process information and does a lot of other stuff. But if if you have, oh God, my dryer is going off. <laughs> I'm in the basement. Surprise guys, I'm not in a fancy studio. So if you have this uh, gray matter reduction, it, it tells people right away that you've experienced trauma at some point in your life. It, and, and gray matter is reduced by spanking, particularly. Corporal punishment shows the highest amounts of reduced gray matter. All of this is really just, according to Dr. Mate, and is what we call ADHD and many other mental illnesses. Because essentially, the byproducts of these types of disorders are your inability to focus or solve problems or deal with stress or handle confrontations or you're socially awkward. So when your brain's in this hyper state of stress, what do you do? You try to calm down. How do you calm down? Some people listen to classical music or do yoga, but people in, that have suffered this type of abuse and have a predisposition for addictive tendencies and, and impulsivity, they tend to be addicted to the rush of feelings that they get from things like drugs and alcohol and, you know, impulsive behaviors. Addictive behavior feels really good. So when someone engages in that type of behavior, their brain is affected. And just like everything I've talked about so far, our experience is largely chemical. So when an addict takes these drugs and it interacts directly with our reward system, which is responsible for generating feelings of pleasure and reinforcing behaviors that are associated with that pleasure. So doing drugs like opioids, cocaine, meth, or Adderall, for instance, they stimulate the release of neurotransmitters like dopamine. And this is what makes you feel pleasurable. But the funny thing about that is, is that those that reward system is exactly, it's igniting the chemicals that you get when your parents say things like, I love you. You're doing a good job. I'm really proud of you. Literally. Oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin. So Dr. Ma Dr. Mate describes this drive to seek substances as a, a quest for like synthetic love. It's really what you're trying to feel in a lot of ways. So that being said, you know, how many people, you know, were grounded totally or, or spanked or in some way or, or they or definitely the cry it out thing. Most people put their babies in separate rooms and practice cry it out. Most people have the idea that you're going to spoil your kids if you do things that seem like like mothers in ancient times and even in other cultures today that are more indigenous and live more natural lives. They don't their, pa their children never leave their sides, you know? They stay strapped to their chest or their back all day. They walk next to them all day, but we don't have that kind of lifestyle. So thinking of the way that we live today and how we need kids really to grow up so that they can be successful. Successful by the terms of not necessarily what's humane or natural, but what's profitable and successful for your career. Knowing how we all have that as a baseline and how easy it is to get traumatized. Look at the world today. 
is it possible that that's why the world seems so messed up? Everyone seems distracted. Everyone seems lost in their phones, their TikToks, that everybody really just wants to escape. Weed's becoming more legal all over the country. Everybody just wants to get high. Everybody wants to drink. There's DUIs, drunk driving accidents, things all the time. Uh, let's not even talk about the opioid epidemic. People that are addicted to legal drugs, such as opioids and amphetamines, dependent on them even. Do you think that has something to do with the way that we're all raised? Evidence suggests that mental illness is becoming more prevalent in many parts of the world. The World Health Organization estimates that around one in four people worldwide will experience a mental health crisis at some point. The prevalence of some mental illnesses such as depression and anxiety appears to be increasing globally. However, it's difficult to determine whether it's due to better diagnosis or that there's just an increase in reporting because of things like the internet and you know we're all closer because of mobile devices and whatnot. So Dr. Mate proposes that the things that we've all named, depression, anxiety, addiction, and PTSD, they're all really the same thing, just on a spectrum, so to speak, just markers of trauma and neglect. So it doesn't take necessarily a Holocaust, right, to be traumatized. You know, because when he talked about the things that, Dr. Mate, I mean, when he talked about the things that he attributed to his ADHD, he never said, oh, it's because I heard bombs blowing up. It was because he was away from his mother. He was separated. He was moving around a lot. He lived unstable. So this becomes a bit of a social discussion because why do we treat our children like this? And I talked about it a little bit of it earlier, but I'll reiterate some. Because my guess is, is that it has something to do with the economy. The standard way we discipline our children and everything that we do at a root is, is founded in the idea that we're going to prepare them for this quote unquote real world. This world where people don't give a shit about you unless you can do your job. I don't care if you have ADHD. If you can't do your job, you're fired. I don't care if you don't feel mentally well today. If you miss too many days, you're fired. You know what I mean? If you don't, I don't care if you're a smart kid or you seem bright or you're interested in all these other things that we don't offer classes or grades for. If you don't have an A, you're out of here, you fail. So of course we raise our kids to some sort of basic standard of what we think of as normal. So if you're not straight up abusing kids or were abused, um, the attempt to make you or the attempt to make your kids well-behaved, quote unquote, are often unknowingly traumatizing. The standard ways that we judge their behavior is actually directly influenced and runs parallel with the paradigms that the real world made for us. They need people to be able to just sit there and do what they have to do. You take as many government mandated breaks or state mandated breaks as you're legally supposed to or you're allotted and you go to work when you don't even feel well, you follow instructions well. Now, if you have difficulty doing things like this, you'll likely have a life of moderate struggle to great struggle. And it's all just because you don't do well in this world and this economy that's been entirely made up to some extent. And all because you couldn't sit down in your seat all day and study like some other kid who does well in this world. But does that mean that that guy who does well is okay? To be well adjusted to the world as it is now, to be successful, it almost requires a certain amount of being broken in, doesn't it? I don't know. I'm just guessing. I'm just talking. So that's it for part one of this episode. I've covered pretty much everything that I, I think I can right now. I'm sure that I could nitpick. I nitpicked at this episode forever. I'm turning it in late now because I've just been thinking about it a lot. Um, there's a lot of 
just a lot of stuff to sort through. Um, Part two will be a little bit shorter. In the next episode, I'll discuss what can be done to help remedy the damaging circumstances that we live in. And not just that, but I'll like, like, I'm not going to be like, go to city hall and write letters, call your state. No, I mean, it'd probably be cool, but um, I'm saying things that you can do on a personal level, eating better, exercising, things like that. But I'll also talk about ways to potentially heal the effects of trauma on your brain. People say that you can actually regrow and regenerate your um, your gray matter and, and parts of your prefrontal cortex and whatnot with just certain techniques and, and things like that. Um, cognitive behavioral therapies and whatnot. I'm not going to get into it now. I'm going to give that away yet. Got to wait till the next episode. So, But apparently Dr. Mate has healed his ADHD. He takes uh, the stimulant medication, says he doesn't feel a thing now, and he doesn't really need it because of his his realizations and whatnot. Anyway, that's pretty much it. I'm excited to talk about everything else next week, and that's it. See you next time. Much love. DC out.